what's true of many people in this room is you're very ambitious. And with that, I'm like, hey, let's like pour some gas on that. Like ambition is good. It's from the Lord. Many of you are like, hey, I want to graduate debt free. I want to get a career in like nursing or business. Some of you guys are like trying to become doctors. You're way smarter than me. Uh, some of you are like, hey, I want to, you know, I want to move to the coast. I want to become a politician. I don't want to live in Cedar Rapids forever. I don't know why. Um, some of you are not trying to move out of Cedar Rapids. You're just trying to move out of the friend zone. We talked about that last week. Uh, yep. Keep working on it. Uh, yeah, some of you really are like, hey, I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want to buy a house. That's a good thing. And some of you, if, if we're being honest, uh, it's not that you don't have ambitions. It's that you have had ambition before and you've seen it fall short. And what's, what's actually happened in your life is you don't set goals anymore. And so... If I were to say to you, you know, like, hey, what's your goal? Or like, what are you up to? Uh, I mean, some of you have been walking in and I was like, how's it going? And you're like, I'm alive. I'm like, is that a goal? Like, <laughs> you're alive? You're breathing? Is that it? Is that like the shelf that we land at? So whether you know it or not, you do have goals. You want to have purpose in life, and that is a good thing. But here's what's true. As we started out our series last week, Summer of Joy in the book of Philippians. Here's what's true. Your joy and your purpose are connected. Your joy and your goals are connected. Think about it. If you have set an ambitious goal before, say you're like, hey, I want to graduate as valedictorian of my class, and you achieve that, like, you feel a sense of joy and accomplishment. Like, I did it. I graduated with, like, a 4.4. I don't know how that's possible, but you are filled with joy. But say your goal was to be valedictorian and you fell short. Your last final, you got an A-. minus. Oh, my goodness. And for whatever reason, your joy is undone because you didn't accomplish your goal. I know how it feels. Like, one of my goals in high school was to be on the podium at state wrestling. And it fell short, and in many ways, it like crushed my love for the sport of wrestling. I hated it. Though I had done it since I was in kindergarten, I went to college and was like, oh, I hate the sport of wrestling. Now, for other of you, others of you in this room, the reality is uh, you don't really set goals because your joy is already crushed. So you're maybe the latter group where it's like, oh, you know, I just hope I don't ruin my life today. Like, my goal is to not get in a car accident. And it's like, wow, that's sad. Like, your joy has already been stripped of you because you have connected it to a goal that maybe you just feel like you can't accomplish. You struggle with purpose, so you kind of lower the bar so you never have to be upset. That's unfortunate. Okay, we all want purpose, and as we talked about last week, we all want joy. So to see these two things as connected is in some ways problematic. Just think about this, right? Like, if your joy is connected to your goals, and your goals can be uncertain or insecure, that means your joy is also uncertain or shaky. And so the question that we have to ask tonight is, how do we not set small goals that leave us settling, but how do we also not build our life on the shaky foundation of an ambitious goal we may never accomplish? What kind of goal should we set? 
Like if we want this joy that we talked about last week that's indestructible, what should our goal be? We're going to be in Philippians 1 tonight. So physical Bible, talked about this last week. Open it up with me if you have one. Otherwise, use your phone, pull out your Bible app. However, you can get to Philippians 1. We set the stage last week. This book is written by a man named Paul. He was a Christian killer, uh, turned Christian convert in the book of Acts. And he is so captivated by Jesus that he not only becomes a follower of Jesus, he becomes a missionary and church planter. He planted the church in Philippi. And this letter comes to them about 10 to 15 years after that church is planted. He is writing from prison in Rome. And this letter is a missionary support letter. He is writing to the church in Philippi, really a couple different purposes. Number one, to just thank them for their support and ministry, but also to encourage them. He is writing to a persecuted church. And so this letter is filled with the term joy or rejoice 16 different times in this short book. We see the words joy and rejoice come up. So Paul is fighting for the church in Philippi's joy. And when you just take a step back and you say, okay, a missionary in prison is writing to a persecuted church to fight for their joy. It's pretty profound. And so last week we talked through the first 11 verses, his greeting and his prayer for the church in Philippi. We're going to pick up in verse 12 tonight. Here's what the word of God says. Uh, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, As you just begin to read into the context of this letter, here's what's happening, okay? The Philippian church has sent Paul money, and they've they've sent it with a guy by the name of Epaphroditus. And part of what Epaphroditus is trying to do is figure out, how is Paul doing? They are concerned about him. They know that he's in prison, and they're like, Paul, how are you doing in prison? And here's what he says, I'm doing great, right? Like, things are great. And it's like, really? Really? You're in prison. I mean, most of you in this room, it's like, hey, we're from Iowa. You're from the Midwest. You can always find something to complain about, right? It's too hot. It's too buggy. You know, my boss is making me work too many hours. Or on the flip side, I don't have enough money. Like, we always find something to complain about. And yet here is Paul imprisoned, and he's saying, things are going great. What? Like, how is he able to say that? Well, it's, it's actually really fascinating because his imprisonment is not like a minimum security prison in 2023, right? I was just reading about this the other day of like, hey, there are prisoners today serving life sentences who like end their day by playing Nintendo Switch and eating ramen noodles. I'm like, that sounds like college, right? That is not Paul's experience. 
He is, he is imprisoned. He is more than likely chained to a Roman guard. And he is reliant upon outsiders to give him enough food to not just, like, survive. Like, they're giving him enough rations to keep him alive, but he needs outside support to even feel full. That is his experience. And so if his goal in life is, like, comfort, that's out the window. And as a missionary and church planter, if his goal is like, hey, I want to be free, I want to travel, I want to accomplish a lot and plant churches, this is devastating. But he doesn't seem devastated. Instead, he's optimistic. Why? Because the gospel is advancing, right? We see that he says, the the gospel is advancing, we see in three different ways. First, the whole imperial guard knows about Jesus through his imprisonment. Like, even to the Roman guards, they are learning about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see that other Christians in Rome are being emboldened. They're being, like, stirred up to share their faith more because they look at Paul's imprisonment. And I just have to say, courage is contagious, okay? Courage is contagious. If you are willing to take a stand for Christ... That does not just impact you. It does not just impact the people you're around. It impacts other Christians. We saw this play out, honestly, this last spring. As our student leaders made it their goal, their ambition to say, we want to share the gospel more boldly. I started to see stories time and time again of, I just shared the gospel with my best friend from high school. And then shortly after that, I just shared the gospel with my dad. You know, I just shared the gospel with my grandma. These stories of people that it's like, oh, if he can share the gospel with his family member, I can share the gospel with my family member. Courage is contagious. We see that happening here in this text. But then there's this last section that can be really confusing, verses 15 through 18. Like, what is going on here? The reality is, Paul has been a significant leader in the early church. And with his imprisonment, there's almost this leadership vacuum. Like, Paul is no longer leading the the churches. And so people are rising to the occasion. People are like, oh, Paul's not leading? Okay, I guess I'll lead. And let's be real. That could crush a guy like Paul. If his goal in life was to be the man to be the primary influencer on the church, he's crushed. But that's not the case. I mean, there's two different situations. Some people are rising to the occasion to really serve Paul's ministry. They're stepping up to the plate and they're saying, hey, if Paul's in prison, I want to help serve his ministry by leading the church. But other people are selfishly replacing Paul. They're like, well, hey, if he can't be the man, I guess I'm the man. Right? Out of selfish ambition, they are rising to power for fame, for this self-worth. And Paul doesn't say, wow, I can't wait until I get my seat back, until I can kick those people out and get my power back. What does he say? Man, you could paraphrase it in saying, I don't really care. As long as Christ is being proclaimed, I get to rejoice As long as Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. Even if it's not me, if someone else is proclaiming Jesus, that is the win. And so we look at his imprisonment, and it's like soldiers are hearing about Jesus. Roman Christians are sharing more boldly about Jesus. You know, 
ministers are stepping up to the, the plate and proclaiming Christ, but I need you to catch this. This is important. Verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is not saying all of this gospel advancement is happening even though I'm in prison. He's actually saying something more along the lines of the gospel is is advancing because I am in prison. See the difference between that? That it's not just, oh, even despite my suffering, the gospel is going forward. It's no, through my suffering, the gospel is going forward. Because I am suffering, the gospel is going forward. Paul is aware that this is not God's plan B. God is not shocked or caught off guard that Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. He's not like, oh no, what are we going to do now? No, God has sovereignly placed Paul in prison for this purpose. He is good, he is in control, he is all wise, and he has said, here is a part of my plan. Paul, you are going to be in prison. And I just have to, that is, that is hard for us. Like, we are finite human beings who have such a small perspective to think that God would purposely place Paul in a place of prison, suffering, and he would do that on purpose that's hard to wrap our minds around. But it's true that God uses humanity's intended evil to accomplish his ultimate good. He uses humanity's intended evil to accomplish his ultimate good. How do I know this to be true? Well, number one, it's all over the Bible. Maybe you guys have heard the story of a guy named Joseph who was receiving visions from the Lord, you know, that he was going to rise to power. And he goes and tells his brothers, and what do they do? They, you know, beat him up, throw him in a pit, sell him to slavery. He ends up getting falsely accused of a crime. Again, imprisoned, but eventually becomes second to Pharaoh. You know, rises to power in Egypt, and his brothers come before him. And they are fearful, because they know what they did to Joseph. And they are afraid about what he is going to do with them. But here's, here's what Joseph says. Genesis 50. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is saying, No, God meant for me to be beaten, sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned, and that actually through that, I would get the opportunity to rise to power and save you from a famine. God meant that. Whoa. That's wild. But it's not just Joseph. Like, the greatest story in all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. God becoming man, putting on flesh, himself betrayed by his own people, sold by Judas, beaten, scourged, mocked, crucified at the hands of lawless men. And here's what Acts 2 says. This is Peter preaching. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Like this is on purpose. That the Son of God would put on flesh and the foreknowledge of God would be that he would suffer and die. But in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Just like Joseph like rose to power that many people should be kept alive, Jesus resurrects from the dead to loose the pangs of death. To say, death no longer gets the final word. Jesus is resurrected and he is now offering you resurrection hope. This is the foreknowledge of God. And though it's in the Bible, it's not just words on a page that I've read. I've experienced this personally. Maybe you have too. And I don't know all the stories in this room, but I do know many of you bring stories of incredible suffering in this room. Stories of real hurt, real brokenness. And it wasn't until my junior year of college that God really woke me up to my need for him. And here's how he did it. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. I started driving home from Ames to Northwest Iowa to to take care of my family, and I ended up getting fired from an internship. And it crushed me. Like, my dad was dying. I just lost my internship that in many ways, I thought paved the way for my future job. But here was the ultimate outcome. I came to trust in Jesus. Like my life goal of becoming a collegiate strength conditioning coach was crushed. My life goal of, you know, having many more years with my dad was crushed. But here's what was better. I came to know Jesus. He actually satisfied my soul in a way that nothing in this world ever could. And how did God do that? Through suffering, through suffering. And Paul in this text is embracing this reality that suffering oftentimes is actually planned out by God for gospel advancement. But here's what he's not doing. He's not minimizing his suffering. He's not like, pretending that he's not in prison. I mean, he talks about his imprisonment frequently in this letter. He knows that his suffering is real, but here's what he is doing. He's zooming out. He's catching a wider lens on life, and he's saying, okay, yes, I'm suffering, but what else is happening? Like, what else is God doing? And he's able to see how God is using his suffering for the advancement of the gospel. And he's rejoicing, right? This joy, rejoice, comes repeated time and time again. He says, this is what I'm doing. I'm rejoicing. And he has more to rejoice in. Read with me. Continue in verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he's rejoicing because he's saying, here's what I know to be true. You're praying for me, and the Spirit of God is working in me and in this situation. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be delivered. But what's confusing is, what does he mean by deliverance? Like, if you look at the actual word, it could be translated, this will turn out for my salvation. So there's two outcomes. He's imprisoned, and one of two things is going to happen. He is going to be either delivered from prison, he's going to be set free, and he's going to get to return to the Philippian church, or he is going to be executed. 
And his deliverance is not from prison, but from life itself. And he gets to then be with Jesus. And so which deliverance is it? At the end of the day, Paul is like, it doesn't really matter. There's no way for me to lose. Keep reading. He says, as it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul's, Paul's goal in life, you know, we talk about goals. Here's his goal in life. I want to know Jesus, and I want to make him known. That's his goal. I want to know Jesus, and I want to make him known. And the good thing is, it doesn't matter whether he lives or whether he dies. He gets to do that. And it's so crazy that he is between these two realities of living this earthly life or dying. And he's like, I'm torn. Like, either way, like, it's a win. But here's what's true. The real sacrifice to Paul is not dying. That's confronting to me. Like, I don't know about you. How many of you are just holding on to the next best thing in this life And the idea of dying is like a threat to you living out your earthly plans. And Paul is saying, no, death is not a threat to me. Like living feels like the real sacrifice because here's what that means. I'm going to have to continue to suffer, but I'm willing to do that. Like to live is Christ. The longer that the Lord has me here on this earth, here's what I get to do. I get to testify to his faithfulness. I get to know him more, and I get to share the gospel more. I get to see more and more people experience the goodness of God. Paul's greatest goal in life is not about himself. It's not about his well-being. It is about God and the gospel. This is incredible. And when you think about, you know, what what is the best goal that I could set in my life It's to know Jesus and to make him known. Last week, we talked about the gift of prayer. And I think we we frequently just gloss over the fact that we get to talk to the God of the universe. Like, are you kidding me? That is a gift. When When you take a step back and say, hey, you can know God. Does that amaze you or not? It ought to, to say, no way, I can know God, I can know the creator of the universe, the one who from the very beginning spoke and galaxies were created, I can know him? Yes, you can know God, but much more than that, even even adding on top of it, here's what God is saying, I am willing to use you, even though you're weak, you're broken, I want to use you to help change people's lives and not just their earthly life, their eternity, that you can then not only know God, but you can allow other people to encounter God. 
and to change their eternities. Like, you are invited into the most ambitious goal you could ever set in your life. But here's what's true. It's going to come at a cost. Right? Matthew 16, Jesus says, hey, if you want to be my disciples, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Maybe you know this. The cross is an instrument of torture and death. And so part of this like ambitious invitation, you can know God and you can make him known. Here's what it's going to cost you. Selfish ambition, comfort. Like you're going to have to suffer. The life of a Christian is marked by suffering, but here's the good news, all right? To live is Christ. Suffering does not pose a threat to that. It actually advances it. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Well, how can God be so near to the brokenhearted? Well, here's what's true. He himself has suffered. Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus, says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Like we follow a suffering Savior who in the midst of your your deepest, darkest suffering is right there with you. He himself has suffered. And and the Christian worldview, if we're being honest, is, is the only worldview that can actually make sense of suffering in a way that leads to hope. There's a gal by the name of Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. And here's one, one thing that she had said. A friend of mine whose teenage son was brain damaged in a sport accident shared his perspective on suffering like this. People often think that the reality of suffering is an embarrassment to the Christian faith. But I think suffering is the greatest apologetic for Christianity there is. From an atheist perspective, not only is there no hope of better end to the story, there is no ultimate story. There is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. From a Christian perspective, there is not only hope for a better end, there is intimacy now with the one whose resurrected hands still bear the scars of the nails that pinned him to the cross. Suffering is not an embarrassment to the Christian faith. It is the thread with which Christ's name is stitched into our lives. Wow. That in a strange but beautiful way, the more you suffer, the more you learn Christ. And that has to be so frustrating to the world. That has to be so frustrating to Rome as they're punishing Paul, and he's rejoicing. 1 Peter 3 says this, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying, hey, you don't have to be afraid of suffering. In fact, when you suffer, here's what's going to happen. People are going to see Christ in you because they see hope 
in you. They see joy in you. And here's what's going to happen. They will not understand how you still have hope, how you still have joy in the midst of suffering. It's because you're close to Jesus. And so they are going to ask you, tell me the reason for your hope or for your joy. And you get the opportunity not only to know Jesus, but make him known. It's amazing. So to live is Christ, but to die is gain. This reality that Jesus resurrected from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. He resurrected, and here's the promise. For those who have trusted in Jesus, those who say this life is no longer about me, but is all for him, here's what's true. We will resurrect too. Death does not get the final word. Death is the final enemy to be defeated. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, death is not the end. It is the beginning of life forever with God, perfectly in his presence. No more sin, no more suffering, perfect intimacy with our creator. 2 Corinthians 5 says, We are always always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, while we're here on earth, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, whether we are on earth or whether we are at home in heaven, we make it our aim to please him, to please Jesus. Death does not get the final word. So when you think about this goal of I want to know Jesus and I want to make him known, it's an indestructible goal, right? You want indestructible joy. You need an indestructible goal that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. No amount of suffering. Nothing can unravel this ability to know him and make him known. Even your own sin is you fail to follow Jesus and you repent and you get on your knees and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Guess what you get to do? You get to know Christ more. Nothing can destroy this goal. And so here's the goal you need if you want indestructible joy. Indestructible joy is found in making all of life all about Jesus. Making all of life all about Jesus. That is our goal. That is our purpose in life. It's what we're created for. Jesus lived and died for us. Our only appropriate response is to to follow his words in Matthew 16, to die to ourselves, deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him, to live for him. It's the only reasonable response, but you might say, okay, how can we do that? How can we practically make all of life all about Jesus? The good thing is we don't have to guess. Paul actually ends this this section here giving real practical application to the church in Philippi and to us tonight. I want to look at it. A few verses to close us out. Here's the, the command or the exhortation. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have three application points. 
okay? Three application points from this short exhortation. Number one is to be a citizen of heaven. Be a citizen of heaven. This, this phrase, manner of life, can also be translated to be to live as citizens. And we talked about last week, this, this church in Philippi, very known for patriotic nationalism. You know, retired soldiers from Rome coming and living in this city, and they are so caught up in their Roman citizenship. And here's what Paul is saying. Hey, don't make your primary allegiance to Caesar or to Rome. It's to Jesus. Live not just as a citizen of Rome. Live as a citizen of heaven. Here's what that means. You need to not only receive the gospel. That's the first step. The only way that you get to be a son or daughter of God is to say, Jesus, you are king of my life, not me. My allegiance is to you, not to myself, not to the ways of this world. My allegiance is to you. You have to receive the gospel, but from that to reprioritize your goals. To say, if my allegiance is to Jesus, all other ambitions in life, no matter how good they might be, fall under that umbrella. All of life is all about knowing Jesus and making him known. That should dictate your tomorrow, your next week, your five-year, 10-year, and 50-year plan to say, my life is all about knowing Jesus and making him known. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And out of the overflow of that, secondly, we are called to stand firm and strive with other believers for the gospel. Don't mean to beat a dead horse here. Last week, we talked about the importance of community. Here's what's true. You can't escape this in the Bible. There is no such thing as following Jesus alone. If you want to live as a citizen of heaven, here's what you have to do. You have to stand firm with other Christians and you have to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel with other Christians. You need to belong to community. Most importantly, you need to belong to a local church. So on Sunday morning, what are you doing? Like you need a family of faith to help you stand firm. And you need the local church to help put the manifold wisdom of God on display to commit to a local church. But let me just talk to you quickly. Because of your age, your summer, here's what's true. You all have friends, some who follow Jesus and some who don't. That is a good thing, okay? We should move towards people with the love of Jesus. But I do have to say, your primary friend group should help you walk with Jesus, help you witness to Jesus. How's your friend group helping you in your faith? Are they helping you strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, or are they sidelining you from mission? This is another plug for Connection Group to say, man, I want to get to know more Christians in our city that I can do life with, people that can help me follow Jesus that we can do this together to strive side by side. And lastly, I want us to rethink suffering. To rethink suffering. There's a unique word used in verse 29. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. In a beautiful way, all of our suffering is not in vain. Because if you are in Christ All of our suffering is with Christ, right? No matter what we're suffering through, Jesus is there with us. But specifically in verse 29, this word granted implies that there's a gift being given. 
there is a gift being given to you. And the first is that you would believe in Jesus. Faith is a gift from God. But here's the second gift, that you can suffer for his sake. How many of you have ever thought about suffering for Jesus as a gift? Probably none of you. I know I really haven't. But we're invited into this like, hey, incredible gift. Here's what you can do. You can suffer for Jesus. You can suffer for Jesus. You don't have to be afraid of an opponent. You don't have to be afraid of ridicule or rejection. You can boldly stand for Jesus. And this is a gift for you because here's what's true. It's a promise of your salvation. It's like, man, if you're ever struggling with, man, is God alive in me? Is he, is he at work within me? How are you doing suffering for Jesus? And for most of us in this room, we're not going to have to fear imprisonment or execution. I'm grateful for that. <laughs> you should be too, right? But here's what you might face. Ridicule from your best friends, rejection by your family. If you take a stand for Jesus and actually begin to open your mouth and share about who Jesus is and what he's done in your life, the question is, will you do that? Will you accept the gift to suffer for Jesus? And here's what's true. If we live this out, this is not just a, a gift to us as 18 to 23-year-olds that we can say, oh man, we can suffer through college with joy. Lord willing, all of you will go on to be 30-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 70-year-olds. And here's what's true. The next 50 years of your life, you're only going to suffer more. And so the vision for this is to say, wow, if suffering is promised, especially as a follower of Jesus, I want to start suffering with joy. We're invited into that, not just tonight, but for the rest of our lives. And so for you to just consider, wow, what would it look like as a 70-year-old to look back on the last 50 years of your life and say, I suffered a lot. But through the suffering, I experienced incredible joy that comes from Jesus. And through that, I get to see the gospel advance. Through my suffering, not in spite of it, through my suffering, the gospel would advance. So that's my prayer for you tonight. We're going to close in prayer. We're going to worship and we're going to give God all the glory. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are wise, that you are all-knowing. Uh, you know every person in this room. You know all of the suffering that they have endured and all of the suffering that they will endure. But God, you are, you are so kind to not be far off or distant, but to be near. You sent Christ to be a suffering Savior so that in our hardest, most challenging, our darkest moments, we can be near to you. And so I pray for this room. God, would you help college students rejoice in you in the midst of suffering? And would their joy in the midst of suffering lead to the gospel being advanced in their friend groups, to their families, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus, because you deserve to be worshipped. We pray this in your name. Amen.